Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology podcast. In this episode, continuing with our theme of exploring the potentials for a stateless society, um, we've already gone through human nature. You can listen to those two episodes where we discuss Hobbes, Rousseau, uh, and some more modern theorists from anthropology, sociology, etc. In this episode, we're going to be discussing um, the difference between state and society. If our original question is, can society exist without a state, we need to be able to understand the difference between those two things. Though, as we've established before, uh, society can most definitely exist without a state. It did for hundreds of thousands of years. Our real question is, uh, can society exist without a state again? So we have to understand and define society and state to begin to understand how that might happen. So I'm going to begin today with just a few definitions of society that I pulled from a few different sources. Uh, this one I actually got from uh, Peter Marshall's, uh, what's the full title here? A History of Anarchism, uh, Demanding the Impossible. Uh, he has a chapter titled Society and the State. That's a, a really good read. Uh, and he quotes this definition here. This is from Chang Tzu, uh, in the 4th century Chinese philosopher, and this is his definition of society. He says, Society is an agreement of a certain number of families and individuals to abide by certain customs. Discordant elements unite to form a harmonious whole. Take away this unity and each has a separate individuality. Point at any one of the many parts of a horse and that is not a horse, although there is a horse before you. It is a combination of all which makes the horse. Similarly, a mountain is high because of its individual particles. A river is large because of its individual drops. And he is just a man who regards all parts from the point of view of the whole. Thus, in regard to the view of others, he holds his own opinion, but not obstinately. In regard to his own views, while conscious of their truth, he does not dispel the opinions of others. What do you think about that one? I think it's pretty pretty accurate. I like the way that that we're actually looking at a source in this case that is is non-Western in its origin and and throughout actually um, as you dig more into into Peter Marshall's book, he actually touches upon Taoism and Eastern philosophy quite often. And I think historically, as we've already talked about regarding human nature and the different theories from Rousseau to even Graeber and his contestation of Rousseau, we see that people have been coming together for a very long time. You're about to read uh, some other quotes from some other philosophers, so I won't steal your thunder on a couple of them. But the idea is that um, whether we are more individualist in our mindset, more collectivist in our mindset, the idea of a society without some sort of coercive oppressive power above it, it has has already existed and is the natural state of how humans usually or used to or could potentially in the future organize themselves. Okay, so we're going to now fast forward uh, to more modern Western examples, much to the chagrin of Jared uh, and myself as well. But we're going to speed through this what is a society portion because it's we can read definitions all day, but I think we kind of have an idea of what a society is. So this one comes from actually an introduction to sociology textbook that I use in my introduction to sociology class. So here's their definition for a society. Quote, a society is a group of people whose members interact, reside in a definable area, and share a culture. A culture includes the group's shared practices, values, and beliefs. Then I'm going to go ahead and read one more. Uh, this comes from the Oxford English Dictionary. 
A society is the aggregate of people living together in a more or less ordered community. Okay, what are your thoughts on those? I think, like, they're quite revealing given the two sources and the language that is used within them, particularly the Oxford one. The use of ordered is very interesting to me. Ordered insinuates that there is some sort of, well, I mean, I, for, I mean, it's order, right? There are categories, and we have some sort of uh, agreed-upon um, rules in society that are not fluid, not fluid that essentially that our societies in in this honestly society resembles what we already have like there are an ordered way of doing things it's very linear um inside the box thinking and again the fact that it comes from a dictionary uh something that we use to categorize label define so that we can break things down into smaller chunks and put them or more or less linguistically inside of a larger lexicon almost like you would put a cog in a machine that's my first problem with this one the fact that we are placing like those types of definitions upon society which feels that it actually came together, at least historically speaking, more organically, right? More due to either individual or collective interest. Um, the first one that comes from the Introduction to Sociology textbook is a little bit better. And the thing I really enjoy about that is the society has culture attached to it. I think that idea of having a culture attached to a society is important because oftentimes we assume that culture is only... It's only about things like the arts or music or these other things, whereas a culture is a way of doing things. Um, and those shared practices, values, and beliefs that this definition adds in there, um, I think adds a necessary diversity while still breaking it up into a digestible chunk where academics can take this and move on, or in your case, in an intro to sociology book, your students can take this thing, move on to understanding how these things function. But I do think it's more open to interpretation. And again, as we've talked about in prior uh, uh, episodes of this podcast, I think the idea that the shared practices, values, and beliefs are passed on, they are reproduced in future generations, and I think that's what makes a society the idea that we want to perpetuate this way of doing things. And that's why I think it's even better because it, it actually takes this definition and leaves it open to um, to non-human entities, right? Like we know that other species pass down ways of doing things and shared practices. So I think that's a little bit better definition. The, the dictionary one really rubs me the wrong way. And it's really, really common in sociology that there's basically two factors in a society. It's a territory and a culture. Uh, in fact, here's another one that I like. This comes from the entry civil society from the Blackwell Encyclopedia of Sociology. Uh, this one is a complex pattern of social relationships that is bound in space and persists over time. Or from another intro book, a group of people who share a culture and a defined territory. So we see common characteristics across many definitions for that give us an idea of how to sort of think about and conceptualize a society. Uh, it's a group of people that share a culture and a territory, and the sharing of these things must exist for some period of time. I, like Jared, like the fact that there's really this diverse, it's a culture and a territory. And like Jared pointed to, the culture includes all kinds of things from language to practices to uh, all kinds of stuff. In fact, we'll get uh, next time when Jared gives us a history of the state, we'll talk about ethnicity, uh, identification, etc., stories, uh, these types of things. So do you have any thoughts further on the culture and the territory aspect of the definition of a society. 
it's hard to dispute them. I hate the fact that territory is included in the idea of society, but I don't know that there's, I mean, it, it, I, historically speaking, I mean, I suppose it has to be. You can't have a shared society if one group is developing in North America and another group is developing in uh, Australia. Obviously, that territory is necessary. I guess I don't like its implications that we're going to get to later on in, in this series of, of podcasts. Um, the fact that that territory will then be expanded upon by a nationalist mindset. So I guess I'm already previewing some of the things we may be discussing later. So I think that's my biggest problem with it is there's going to be certain assumptions about it regarding the construction of nation states, which are, in our view, purview, wildly problematic. However, given what we're doing here and going back in time and looking at how human, humans organized, yes, naturally they, they shared a space. So they understood, again... Through the observable world, a society only has the culture it has because of where it developed, right? So if you are Inuit, you have a specific type of culture based around living in the extreme northern uh, climate. Whereas if you are an Amazonian tribe, you're going to have a different shared values, practices, and beliefs because you live in a completely different uh, space. So, yeah, I, I can't contest it. I want to because I hate what it implies about the nation state later. But I also but I think we have to be careful to not read these definitions with a... A sort of a sense of presentism, because I think when we think of the terms territory, or even one of the definitions specifically uses defined territory, we envision probably something that looks like a state with at least some kind of demarcation between other territories, whether that's a fence or a border or a wall or whatever it is. But I think we have to be careful sort of not to take it from that perspective, because very clearly, you can share a territory with someone without having that being concretely defined with a wall a border etc something like that yeah i agree with that okay on to what is a state and we're going to have some more extensive quotes here from a variety of sources uh when we define a state and really we could have started anywhere but i just pulled out a few more modern examples modern we're starting in the 1800s uh some philosophers and different thinkers that have provided us with definitions of their idea of a state so the first one we're going to read is frederick Engels. Um, he writes this in 1844. Um, so I'm going to read a quote here. He says, The state is therefore by no means a power imposed on society from without. Just as little is it the reality of moral, the moral idea, the image and the reality of reason, as Hegel maintains. Rather, it is a product of society at a particular stage of development. It is the admission that this society has involved itself in insoluble self-contradiction and is cleft into irreconcilable antagonisms, which it is powerless to exercise. But in order that these antagonisms, classes with conflicting economic interests, shall not consume themselves and society in fruitless struggle, a power apparently standing above society has become necessary to moderate the conflict and keep it within the bounds of order. And this power, arisen out of society but placing itself above it and increasingly alienating itself from it, is the state. So for Engels, the state is an entity that exists above society that is the result of irreconcilable contradictions within that society. The state is a power apparently standing above society, he says. And for Engels specifically, the state exists to moderate class conflict. So according to Engels' conception of the state, we the state was born out of this class conflict that was irreconcilable, to use his term. And so the job of the state is to make sure that class conflict 
does not boil over to such a point to where society uh, can no longer exist. Yeah, I think, I mean, Engels is, is not entirely, of course, incorrect in his idea. I don't think it's a, it's, it's, he's using a very specific lens to discuss the role historically of the state. But again, I don't think he's entirely incorrect that, that states were born for numerous purposes. And we'll get a little bit more into the history of that in the, in the next episode. But the idea specifically that is, it is to keep uh, class conflict in check. I think is important because it, 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 it previews some of his later thoughts regarding social organization going forward and, and maybe flies in the face of certain anarchist philosophers and, and especially backing and coming to mind right now, arguing that the establishment of a state in and of itself for whatever purposes at any point in time goes against the ideas of individual freedom, liberty, and autonomy. Angles, I guess, would combat, if I want to put on my angles hat for just a second, like the idea that those go things are going to absolutely be necessary or as people will naturally gravitate back into, of course, this hierarchical exploitative relationship and those conflicts, of course, will will boil over into, into violence and more. The other thing that you think about when you think about angles, which is kind of funny, coming from a little bit different of uh, different ideological sense, are the ideas of the the British and even later on American uh, philosophers on this topic, the James Madisons, the Thomas Paines, so on and so forth, of this idea of protecting certain minorities. You can see a little bit of that even in angles. So even though we kind of uh, oftentimes in modern academic circles approach philosophers that would be considered quote unquote socialist and those that would be more uh, pseudo Republican democratic they actually share a lot in common and i, I know you're probably going to approach thomas Paine here in a moment um, regarding common sense but but we see some of those similar things that a state is for lack of a better term and and i know our listeners and our students in the class will probably say this is a necessary evil for whatever reason it's necessary to distribute resources properly or it's necessary to keep society in check and to keep people's uh maybe even to protect their liberty and freedom they have to give up a little bit of that so that they can have so that they can keep a little bit of what they have those things to me are all highly problematic ways to approach this if we are if ultimately our goal is to look towards a stateless society that those are just excuses we're making certain assumptions about human nature and uh as we've already done in prior episodes we've kind of debunked those a little bit already and that's one of the problems i see with Engels' definition though i don't see it i don't wholly disagree with the whole thing yeah obviously Engels' definition of a state falls within which would be no surprise socialist logic that the modes of production and the state along with them must be seized equality must be imposed uh, then the state will wither away the state is the result of class conflict so the elimination of class conflict will result in the elimination of the state, etc. Um, like Jared says, we might disagree with minor points of Engels' theory, but it's pretty hard to disagree with it as an appealing philosophy. Uh, clearly, it's uh, garnered millions and millions and millions of followers throughout the years. Um, it's a really hard one to disagree with, to sort of view the state as resulting from class conflict and protecting sort of society from that conflict. Next, let's talk about Kropotkin. Um, he's writing in the late 1800s. Uh, for him, the state is a form of social life in which the mutual insurance uh, between the military, judicial, landlord, and capitalist authority is fully established. So for Kropotkin, that's the role of the state is really forming the relationship between those aspects of society. So here's a quote from him. Uh, this is from 1898. 
anarchism its philosophy and ideal. Quote, to begin with, if man since his origin has always lived in societies, the state is but one of the forms of social life, quite recent as far as regards European societies. Men lived thousands of years before the first states were constituted. Greece and Rome existed for centuries before the Macedonian and Roman empires were built up. And for us modern Europeans, the centralized states date but from the 16th century. It was only then, after the defeat of the free medieval communes had been completed, that the mutual insurance company between military, judicial, landlord, and capitalist authority, which we call state, could be fully established. So what do you think about Kropotkin's idea there? I mean, he admits even in, in his example that it's, you know, Eurocentric. He's taking this approach that his, that's his culture. That's his example. That's what he can draw from. And I, and I think he is, I think he's very clear in the idea that there was, and maybe it's a little bit romanticized, these ideas of these middle age communes, which we know they did exist. Um, we also know that it's not just like these communes for, for people that were resisting both church and, I don't even want to use the word state. The Middle Ages is debatable whether we would classify these princely kingdoms as states. But regardless, they're establishing that 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 structured, ordered society at the time, right? Those who fight, those who pray, those who work. Um, that that was very common in the Middle Ages in many parts of of, of Western and and a little bit in Eastern Europe. And maybe again, this is where that romanticization in Kropotkin's view comes in: is this idea that those communes were defeated and maybe did not necessarily willingly submit to larger and larger growing state apparatuses. And in this case, again, it's very difficult to separate church and church the way we can in maybe modern times. And I, well, that's a whole actually different thing that I don't want to get into right now, whether they're actually separated or not. But it's in the Middle Ages, much more difficult to separate a church and a state. The church operated essentially in many parts as the state. There was definitely contestation between both the lay leadership and the clergy. But regardless, they often, again, scratched each other's backs enough to where one would perpetuate the power of the other and vice versa. They had a reflexive relationship for a very long period of time. And these communes operated, in many cases, in resistance to them. I guess what I'm debating is there was definitely conflict, there was definitely war, but did these communes eventually reach a point where they willingly ceded their autonomy to these states, or was it taken from them? I'm not sure the sources historically are very clear on this. We know that conflict existed. We know that there were wars. We know that there were battles, and we know that there were um, territorial uh, territorial sessions. We can't really get into the minds, especially a lot, of, uh, especially of these um, these societies, these stateless societies of the Middle Ages. And I think that's that's part of the problem with Kropotkin using this example. So I do want to ask you one question here, and I don't want to steal too much of your thunder from the next episode, which will be the history of the state. But what do you think about his claim that uh, for modern Europeans, the centralized states begin in the 16th century? The centralized state begin in the 16th century. I disagree. Um, and we'll be talking about that in the next episode. And and it's not just it's not I'm not even wholly original here in disagreeing with that. Um, numerous other sources that talk about the history and establishment of the state um, also tend to disagree with Kropotkin's idea that it, that it is a uniquely 16th 
century European creation. I, we'll argue in this podcast, and others have argued, that what the Egyptians were able to establish in the Old Kingdom resembled um, state-like apparatuses. And some of the city-states of Mesopotamia did the same. And and even though, again, some of the sources disagree on this, the way I will frame it, the uh, Greek city-states were, were states. They're states. We call them city-states for a reason. They had state-like structures. Um, they had coercive oppressive laws, they had rigid hierarchy, they had stratification, they had narratives that supported this, and they got people to either buy in using these stories or, of course, coercive force. Um, and they were founded on conflict. So I think all of those ancient examples, and of course the biggest one we'll get to is the Roman Empire, were state-like in their structure. Um, specific to Western civilization. We'll also probably talk a little, little bit about the Eastern civilizations regarding, uh, of course, the establishment of cities in India and establishment of caste, and of course, a little bit regarding the various early uh, Chinese dynasties like the Shang dynasty and then the, uh, eventually the uh, the Qin dynasty. Those were states too. We don't necessarily call them like nation states, which we'll be critiquing later on in, this, the, in, in a later episode, but they are states. They're state-like in their establishment of authority and exploitative rule. I do want to stick with Kropotkin for just another second because he gives us a chunk here that in which he explains the difference between state and government, which I think is good. Jared and I could wax forever on the difference between state and government, but we'll just let him have this quote, and then I think it's enough to where we can move on. This comes from uh, his 1896 publication, The State, Its Historic Role. He says, On the other hand, the state has also been confused with government. Since there can be no state without government, it, is some, it has sometimes been said that what one must aim at is the absence of government and not the abolition of state. However, it seems to me that the state and government are two concepts of a different order. The state idea means something quite different from the idea of government. It not only includes the existence of a power situated above society, but also of a territorial concentration, as well as the concentration in the hands of a few of many functions in the life of societies. It implies some new relationships between members of society which did not exist before the formation of the state. A whole mechanism of legislation and of policing has to be developed in order to subject some classes to the domination of others. What are your thoughts on that? I think the distinction between government and state is good. I think the more, I don't know, abstract way he approaches state. I mean, government is pretty pretty simplistic, right? That is a very material body that is meant to, of course, establish some sort of le legislative, there is authority, there are legislative authority uh, over the way a society functions. But a state, for some reason, is is as a level just above that. Because again, he's not talking about some sort of stateless utopia. He's talking about just states in general. And the state is not just, of course, material and exploitative, exploitative uh, uh, power. It is ideological as well. It is, it, I mean, and we'll get to this hopefully in, 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 in the future. We're not sure yet where it fits, but it is arguably exploitative in its spiritual um, approaches to things and its use of those types of narratives. So the state is... In this case, the idea of state supersedes the idea of government. Government is merely an apparatus. It is a tool, and maybe I'm reading Kropotkin wrong on this, but that's how I think he's approaching it, whereas – and both, both are authoritative. Both um, can be, and the state always is, exploitative, um, but the state supersedes government in that case. There's more to it than merely an apparatus to legislate um, power. Um, moving on now, shifting to Max Weber which I have to say as a sociologist makes me happy that 
I came across Weber's definition of the state extensively while I was researching anthropology and the other sciences, uh, discussing the history of states, etc. cetera. Uh, I didn't know that Weber's concept of the state was so pervasive. Um, he's writing this, what I'm about to read from. This comes from Politics as Vocation, which was a lecture he delivered in 1919. He says, quote, What is a state? Sociologically, the state cannot be defined in terms of its ends. There is scarcely any task that some political association has not taken in hand, and there is no task that one could say has always been exclusive and peculiar to those associations which are designed as political ones. Today the state, or historically those associations which have been the predecessors of the modern state. Ultimately, one can define the modern state sociological only in the terms of the specific means peculiar to it as to every political association, namely the use of physical force. He continues, If no social institutions existed which knew the use of violence, then the concept of state would be eliminated, and a condition would emerge that could be designated as anarchy in the specific sense of the word. Of course, force is certainly not normal, or the only means of the state. Nobody says that, but the force is a means specific to the state. And then he finally gives us his definition of the state. He says, specifically, at the present time, the right to use physical force is ascribed to other institutions or to individuals only to the extent to which the state permits it. The state is considered the sole source of the right to use violence. A state is a human community that successfully claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force within a given territory. That's absolutely fire. That's perfect. Um, I've always been a big fan of Weber, um, and we use him uh, quite a bit in our classes. But I think that that addition right there, that it's not just exploitative, it's not just authoritative, that it is specific to this idea of violence. Um, and, and as uh, we can discuss ad nauseum, the idea of legitimate versus illegitimate violence, the state is the one that has the monopoly on uh, the legitimate use of physical force or legitimate violence, whether that is through uh, policing institutions, whether that is through uh, incarceration institutions, those are all forms of violence. Um, violence, whether it's um, actual physical, sometimes it can be ideal, sometimes it can be emotional, all of these things that we now know um, take place within the state are are meant to reify the and establish the idea that the state supersedes the autonomous will of the individual within the state. Like, and I think that, that, that Weber really nails it here. Um, that idea of physical force or violence is, is absolutely key. Um, and it's not just that states establish this ability to legitimately use physical force within their given territory. They're able to uh, use, and we'll, as we'll learn in the next episode, external enforcement, right? External enforcement and legitimize their violence outside of their society. And it's never for some sort of egalitarian purpose, contrary to popular belief. This idea that we need to make war to make peace or whatever other adages that we have been told are completely bullshit. Um, and I think that's one of the things that Weber is already calling out, right? If we think about it, if we think how societies come together, right, we know that the idea of violence in, in, I don't want to be overly generalized, but in many societies, violence within the society for the individual is considered a bad thing. It's as simple as don't murder, don't murder your friends, don't murder your neighbors. You're in the modern United States, murder is outlawed, right? How many laws do we need on that? That's debatable, all the different forms of murder that are possible. But basically, we learn from a very early age in our modern society that killing, quote unquote, is bad, unless 
you happen to be sitting on some sort of natural resource somewhere else in the world that we really want to access to better our lives. Or unless you happen to be uh, accused, maybe not always actually uh, uh, you can be convicted, but we already know how many people are quote-unquote innocent on death row, unless you are accused of X and maybe convicted of X. Right, So this idea that there is a, a monopoly on violence or killing or something along those lines, I mean, it's clear as day, right? We can see that. Imminent domain on property. We consider like damage to property violent uh, among numerous resistance movements, right? How dare Black Block maybe throw a, a brick through a building or something along those lines? Oh my God, they are so violent and then they are displayed in the media as such. But the state can just bulldoze whenever they want and there is no necessarily recourse for the individuals there, right? We are stuck in this relationship with the state, um, and violence is one of those clear delineations where state establishes itself as the proprietor over individual autonomy. I love this definition. Shifting from Weber to Antonio Gramsci, who's writing in the 1930s um, from prison, uh, in the prison, what became known as the prison notebooks, which were thousands of pages that Gramsci wrote while he was in prison that covered everything from philosophy to social theory to uh, history, etc., he provides us a definition of the state. He says, quote, The state is the entire complex of practical and theoretical activities with which the ruling class not only justifies and maintains its dominance, but manages to win the active consent of those over whom it rules. Unquote. Now, the key here that I like, in contrast to Weber's discussion of violence, for Gramsci, and if you know anything about his theory of hegemony, violence is used very rarely that... In fact, and what he's saying here re related to the state specifically is that it wins consent over those that it rules, that the subjects willingly submit themselves to the state. So what do you think about Gramsci's definition? I think that 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 he is definitely on to something, this idea. I mean, of course, when you tie in his notions on hegemony, I mean, there are certain things that we are willing to submit to, um, even knowing that we are entering into these uh, relationships of power and exploitation, we're willing to, because of this idea of hegemony, maybe there are limited options in our world, maybe you are born to it, maybe we're conditioned into it, maybe we are socialized into it, use your, your adjective here uh, for your favorite discipline. But regardless, this idea is that um, there is consent. Um, and whether that consent is conscious or subconscious, that's one of the reasons that states have been perpetual from, well, we'll dig into this later, but from basically time immemorial, at least again, if we borrow from J.J. Rousseau, the agricultural and Neolithic revolution on, right, states have been perpetual because the there is active consent among those people. They are willingly able to, again, whether it's because they have limited options or whether it's through learning processes, they're willing to give up their autonomy um, in the name of whatever it is. Uh, in modern society, especially in the industrialized world, that would be our creature comforts. That might be fear of recourse. That might be um, fear of even giving up what little we already have or our idea of status, right? Like we know, most of us are aware that our status is marginal at best uh, unless we are among the elite. And we also like that status uh, to know that we are above or, well, I would say never, not below, but to know that we are above others. And we, we know how fragile that may or may not be, whether we're living paycheck to paycheck or whatever it might be. 
we are willing to give up some of that autonomy to ensure that our status and the status that we pass on to those below us remains intact, even if it is not necessarily full-blown autonomy. I mean, again, it's a cost-benefit analysis, perhaps, that some people uh, uh, have in their brains that, that the cost of perhaps challenging the idea of the states do not uh, – the cost outweighs the possible benefits of a stateless society. So in that case, I think it is comfort. I think it's fear. I think there's a lot of apathy in there. I think states have, have done a good job of instilling apathy, apathy, especially in the modern industrialized world, right? Well, I could challenge the notion of the state, but it is because of the state apparatuses and all these wonderful things that I get to whatever, go to school and major in physics. And when I go home, Netflix and chill and play a little bit of Fortnite. And, and do I really want to give all that up just so that I can say I am my own free thinking, free living person? Uh, I think a lot of people are willingly dis willing to submit. Because the state is giving them a reason for being, a reason for being that maybe the role of religion used to have, but now I would argue it's the state. So, Okay, now we're fast forwarding uh, a little bit more to, uh, this is, I took this from James C. Scott's book, Against the Grain, that he published in 2017. Um, he also has a couple of other books that are related. One is called Seeing Like a State, which we'll use in the next episode. And he has another, The Art of Not Being Governed, I think is the title, which we'll actually probably use uh, later on as well. But this comes from Against the Grain. He says, Stateness, in my view, is an institutional continuum, less an either-or proposition than a judgment of more or less. A polity with a king, specialized administrative staff, social hierarchy, a monumental city center, city walls and tax collections and distributions is certainly a state in the strong sense of the word. 100%. I mean, those are all clear definitions of how states function, whether we want to look at historical examples or are we're probably most interested in the modern ones in this, in this, in this uh, podcast slash course that we're developing here. I, I don't even know that there's much, much to add, right? We, we have kings. Um, some of them are idealized kings, perhaps a LeBron James, um, excuse my basketball joke there, or maybe it is an executive, or maybe it is a Bezos or a Gates or a uh, great late Steve Jobs or whatever it is, we have these polities with kings, right? And again, as Weber and Gramsci have insinuated before them, that they have, A, have a monopoly on uh, coercive or authoritative violent power, and we have been socialized to willingly consent to them being above us for whatever reason. We also know that the state operates with an administrative staff that only seems to grow over time. Again, let's pick on the United States specifically. If we think about how small the first cabinet was in comparison to the current cabinet, and we know that basically every executive branch has extended power from the very first one, right? That's not unique to the current administration or the administration before, or even the first administration under uh, Washington. Every administration has um, grown its administrative staff almost. There was a little bit of a, a, a backslide under, under a guy like Thomas Jefferson. But for the most part, administrative power has grown. And the executive power has grown. Um, and then even within that, we see a social hierarchy, not in just how they operate, but in how we, the public, purview, uh, per, uh, 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 view them. Um, which is, again, one of the key revelations to what we're seeing with Scott. Again, using the United States, which is supposed to be a, a nice balanced check and balance of these three powers, no one would debate 
right? Whether or not the general public, i.e. the ones that have had their autonomy taken by the state, view the executive as more crucial or important than the legislative. And then way on down the line, very few people ever really talk about the judicial. So right there, again, we know that those are supposed to be three equal powers, quote unquote. And yet if we look at things in 2019, both the way they operate and the view of the public underneath them, they're not remotely equal. Um, and then, of course, we see social hierarchy. I don't even need to give examples of that in a modern society. It is all social hierarchy. We'll talk about it in the next podcast, but I'll give the example for example. I'll give the easy example. A Taco Bell employee and, again, my aforementioned LeBron James are both labor. They do not view themselves as labor. Neither does society. They are widely, widely uh, – uh, uh, there's a massive gap in the perception of their work, yet their work is generally labor in perpetuation of the state. So in that, they have it in common, yet we don't perceive it that way. We also see a monumental city center, city walls. In this case, the, the, the city center could be the entire state in some societies and city walls. Well, again, one need look, look no further than the current government shutdown and the ideas behind wall building right there to understand the way this works. Tax collections and distributions are certainly state-like. And, and of course, the great irony in the United States is we pay more taxes than our aforementioned uh, uh, architects of this country ever even dreamed of. And they were willing to uh, go to war to stop having to pay those types of taxes and the fact that we are willingly so docile and giving up our consent to paying more taxes than they were ever subject to says everything we need to know about this continuum that James C. Scott talks about of stateness and its growth over time. Moving on now to more of a post-structural conception of the state, and I admit that I was really introduced in uh, to this idea in an article by Saul Newman written in 2015 titled War on the State, uh, Sterner and Deleuze's Anarchism. Um, as a sociologist, I've dabbled in post-structuralism mostly through Foucault, Discipline and Punish, etc., History of Sexuality, uh, Madness and Civilization. Uh, I've digested all of those works. I've never uh, in my life thought about post-structural philosophy in the sense of anarchism until very recently. Uh, in fact, in a couple of episodes, we're going to have an episode on post-structural anarchism, but we'll get to dive into this idea uh, much, much more. But that's where most of my information on this is coming from, is from that article, uh, War on the State, um, which interestingly actually relates Stirner and Deleuze together. Uh, and I think in a really, really, it's well done. Um, but the post-structural conception of the state as you might imagine, um, abandons the idea that there's a single institution uh, or a conglomerate of multiple oppressive institutions, uh, rather the state and state power is an abstract idea. Similar to police power or the power of a patriarch, state power manifests itself in various real and concrete ways, but the power itself is an abstract idea. Uh, I think that it helps to understand this if you think to yourself, if you've ever seen the state. We can all think of examples where we've seen the state manifest itself. Perhaps we've seen or been to a Capitol building, or we've been to City Hall, or we've seen the police station, uh, we've seen a prison, etc. We've even probably seen state power in action when we've seen the police doing something or the military doing something, or maybe we've seen on television the proceedings of the Senate or something like that. But regardless of everything that you've ever observed yourself, there's always some remainder. There's something that exists that embodies the state 
that isn't visible. Uh, it remains invisible. Much like the post-structuralist concept of power that is sort of capillary or to use uh, Deleuze's metaphor, the rhizome, there's no real central aspect to how power exists or is distributed. The state is uh, similar when we're talking about the post-structuralist concept of the state. It manifests itself in very real ways at different times, but it always sort of exists in the margins uh, within and between each of its subjects. And I like that concept that the state, rather than just being the government or just being the police or just et cetera, uh, so on, the state actually exists within each and every one of us. Um, I also love the idea here that in contrast to the structuralist concept of the state where statehood sort of became pervasive over the entire earth um, with enclosing all of the physical territory, the land, the post-structuralist state accomplishes its hegemony by fully enclosing the mind um, into discourses that subjugate the individual to the state. Um, and they list all kinds here. Um, rational thinking, the idea of morality, the emphasis on humanism, etc. And that when we buy into and we legitimize those discourses, that contributes to legitimizing and buying into the discourse that is the state as well. So what do you think about this one? I appreciate the idea of, of post-structuralist uh, philosophers attempting to explore new and different ways to approach things. Because uh, as we've discussed for a long time, falling upon philosophies that at this point are between 150, 200 years old uh, regarding completely different material constructs and a different ideal world, I mean, that, that that's getting tired, right? And it's not necessarily leading to a fruitful uh, discussion about how to, well, the point of this podcast, develop uh, a stateless society or if stateless societies are even possible, and if so, how do we get there? So I think the first thing that we have to do is credit post-structuralists for challenging uh, the Marxist perspective in that case. Um, but I think this idea that state presupposes a mode of production, um, I have a hard time I mean, what they're trying to do is denigrate the idea that states require production for their existence. And historically speaking, as we're going to be talking about in the next episode, I just have a very hard time. And maybe that's just because of my limited uh, understanding of, of, of other examples that maybe existed prior to the establishment of state. But but production was crucial in the establishment of state. I guess I guess that's – and modes of production were absolutely crucial in the establishment of state, not just agriculture, which everyone, of course, knows. The agricultural, quote-unquote, revolution led to the establishment of states. But I think everything there within, right, it not just led to, of course, the growth of crops, but the ideas of, of how those crops would be cultivated, tool innovation, and it guided us as humans in a very kind of linear fashion. Like you could innovate, but your innovations would be naturally limited by the state monopoly on what you could innovate, right? You wouldn't, if you are in an agricultural society, you would naturally be innovative and create perhaps a new steel plow. And that's nice that you were able to do that. But you, what other things could you have created with your uh, imagination had you not already been socialized in this productive force as established by a state? And I think that's the one thing 
that sometimes happens in post-structuralist thought. That sometimes, um, again, and we, we accuse the Enlightenment thinkers of doing this. Well, I also sometimes accuse post-structuralist thinkers of doing this. We break things down in such small parts in a hope to rebuild a new story, but sometimes we break it down so small that it's very hard to recreate the story when we don't know what we're trying to do anymore. We get, we get tunnel vision, for lack of a better term. And I think that's one of my critiques. It's my only critique because I, I do think that post-structuralism is starting to ask the hard questions um, for what could be failed, uh, failed ideas, both of power and resistance. Because again, if Marx, if, 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 if power and state power or capitalist power is what we're critiquing and Marx was critiquing as an antithesis, we've seen both fail, right? We've seen Marxist ideas fail and we've definitely seen the thesis fail or else we would not obviously bother with this podcast if everything was right in the world and people had their own autonomy. So both have failed. And so I think that's why I do appreciate the post-structuralist it's just sometimes it's so damn frustrating digging into, again, the fracturing in me as a historian, the fracturing of history so small that they no longer have any meaning within the larger context or larger narrative of us. Um, and that's how I see it in history. I won't pretend to be as, as much of an expert on post-structural like philosophy or post-structural sociologists or so, so on and so forth. But that's one of my critiques is sometimes it just gets so dug down in the minutia that then there's nothing for us to really grapple on, grab onto. I do want to Stay for a minute on this very specific quote that you have here up on the screen, because I think that you're reading too far into this. And I'll read the quote for our listeners. This comes from Newman in that article. He says, turning this traditional Marxist analysis on its head, they, being the post-structuralist, suggest that the mode of production may in fact be derived from the state. As Deleuze says, it is not the state that presupposes a mode of production, quite the opposite. It is the state that makes the productions a mode. Now, end quote. I think you're misinterpreting this to say that they're suggesting that the state existed and then capitalism came along. I don't think that's what they're saying at all. I think that they're saying capitalism existed, but it's the state that through its legitimization of capitalism that, quote, makes it a mode, that makes it the dominant ideology and the dominant way of doing production. So it's more of this reflexive relationship that apparently I'm not reading into this this section on, on what he's saying. I, and I could see that, that there is this idea... And if we want to use the modern mode of production, which is capitalism, right, then we can see that they have this reflexive relationship. And I wouldn't debate that whatsoever. In fact, before we even started this podcast, that's what we talked about. How do they continuously, again, in the 21st century, reinforce each other and have now for the better part of, you know, three or four centuries? There is definitely that, that back scratching on, on either side. Yeah. So I, I, I can definitely see that point. I want to read another quote from Newman and get your thoughts on it. He says, so for both Stirner and Deleuze, the state must be overcome as an idea before it can be overcome in reality. This is the only way to ensure that a new state does not spring up in place of the old. 100% agree. That's that's key. And that's one of the reasons we even, you know, one of the other courses we teach is ideology and isms, is we want to dig into the idea that these these ways of doing things that support actual institutions and systems. So the, it's the ideas that support the physical manifestations. Um, those are what we need to attack. And it's arguably why we choose to teach rather than, you know, whatever, go out and form, you know, revolutionary cells or whatever it is. It is these ideas that we must attack. So once you can deconstruct uh, among at least a large enough part of the population that there are potentially another way of doing things, or at least just get them to question the current way of doing things that you cannot, until you can do that, there will be no change uh, moving forward. And we've seen that in just about every revolution we we, we teach in, in our courses, right? That 
very quickly, soon after the revolution is successful, we see the establishment of a society that looks awfully like, like a lot like the old society. Maybe they have new language and new terminology, but there's still hierarchy. There's still exploitation. There's still course of power. The state creates a monopoly on violence and so on and so forth. Again, the United States is the easiest one to pick on, right? They fought against taxation and immediately after succeeding, they implement taxation and taxes that were higher than, than, than there were prior. And we know that they then legitimize their exercise of violence over people when the Shays Rebellion and then later on the Whiskey Rebellion uh, become absolute, absolutely crucial for them to stamp out. They violently stamp them out, right? Which, again, if you look at the, the history of both those rebellions, they were arguing for pretty much the same thing that the architects were arguing for before the war. And we see that that, that they, uh, again, now that they're the ones in power, completely forget the same arguments that they were using 10, 20 years prior. So, yeah, I mean, that's an easy one to pick on. We could go through the Soviet Union. We could go through Cuba. All these other societies and their establishment of state there afterwards, right? The, the, the uh, Bolsheviks and their establishment um, under Lenin of the Cheka, right? This secret police force that was meant to, of course, they used legitimized violence and coercive power um, to basically consolidate their grip on, on, on at that point, uh, politics in Petrograd, right? So. I mean, it's very clear that the quote-unquote architects of the United States weren't against taxation wholesale, they were against what they viewed to be oppressive taxation coming from a source that they could not control. Um, had they been able to transcend the idea of taxation altogether, maybe this podcast wouldn't be necessary or this course or the research we're doing but who now. determines what that legitimate taxation was, right? They established new taxation. And of course, if you were a grain farmer in Pennsylvania after the establishment of the Constitution, you still thought that was questionable um, legitimacy of that taxation, right? And you definitely thought so if you were a member of, of Shays' bands prior to that, right? You literally fought in the war and then immediately had your land and, you, and on, honestly your debts taxed in hard currencies and they paid you in, in paper currency and you were no longer able to, of course, afford that and it led to rebellion. But again, from Shea's point of view and his man in Luke Day, we, we teach this all the time, that was illegitimate, right? Whereas uh, the arguments prior to that for the architects, it was illegitimate. Like, why should king and parliament be able to tax us these external taxes? They're unfair when we do not have direct uh, representation in parliament. And, of course, they argued back, you actually do. You have virtual representation, but that's a whole debate we don't need to open up into. The idea is who is creating the rules that we all are forced to play by and how legitimate or illegitimate are they and how do they enforce them? But I think that you that leads perfectly into the post-structuralist philosophy, especially as it surrounds anarchism in the state, is the debate isn't over which state in this case specifically is legitimate or illegitimate, just like it's not over which taxation was legitimate or illegitimate. It's we have to transcend the state even as an idea and realize that there is no legitimate state whatsoever. Indeed. We also probably, I mean, did we, did we draw any sort of, sort of conclusion here what is the difference between a state and society based on all of these academics that we have discussed in the past or philosophers or political commentary the difference between society and state uh it's very hard to make generalizations when you're looking at again past philosophers or modern political theorists but one thing that that we want to establish at least for ourselves moving forward as we think about this again not only this podcast this podcast is basically giving paving the way for a new course is the idea that society 
is the natural organic organization, and I, I can't even believe I use the word organization after I just critique the dictionary, but this natural coming together of humanity, whether it is for their own self, self-interest, because we before me just helps me survive better, or because I naturally need to be around other people, or because I have a more egalitarian collective, collectivist mindset, human beings come together and form these bonds and, for lack of a better term, these little mini social contracts with each other because it benefits, of course, either them or the whole or, of course, both at the same time. The state is the separate, above, hierarchical, legitimate violence user establishment of authoritative course of power that comes along either later or intermittently or it oscillates, as Graeber said, uh, in between these different epics. So society is us coming together because we want to, we need to. Uh, the state is the forceful uh, uh, collection and reproduction of that over time. I mean, is that, I mean, can we can we stand our ground on those two differences or what do you think? What would you add to those? Where, where would the, the sociological terms come in? So the post-structuralist critique of what you just laid out and this is when we get into post-structuralist anarchism, we'll dive into this much, much deeper. But one of the problems that the post-structuralists have with classical anarchism is this constant hearkening back to the natural state of man. And so if we define society as sort of like the natural organization, even though you hate that word, the natural state of man, that's where the post-structuralists have a problem because they say that the that's such a humanistic perspective that we're relying on the humanistic discourse to then define what a society is. The post-structuralists would say, A, we need to abandon the humanistic discourse because it has all kinds of power relationships embedded within it. But B, that there is no natural state of man, that our belief in any of the natural states of man are a result of our beliefs in certain discourses, and there is no absolute truth. In addition, there, we can't make universal conclusions. For the post-structuralists, there are no universals whatsoever. So we can't possibly make a conclusion about what the natural state of man is or that society is natural among human beings because doing so will also just prove that we are abiding one discourse uh, in one discourse over another and succumbing to the power of that one discourse over some other discourse, that we shouldn't make universals at all. So we leave this inconclusive. If we're post-structuralists. What you gave is the perfectly fine structuralist view of the state and society. The post-structuralists would disagree because they would say we can't possibly make conclusions. We would have to leave it inconclusive. Not to say that society doesn't exist or the state doesn't exist, but we can't possibly go back to what the natural state of man was to support either of those but definitions. Can we be con- that's fine. Then, then we're relying on, of course, at this point, like thousands of years of information that is highly, highly ideologically or philosophically or disciplinary. And there, it's narrow. I get it. I get what the post-structuralist is saying. What are the conclusive thoughts about moving forward, stateless-wise? Is that what we're are? Are we going to get to that? That's going to have to be its whole own episode on post-structural anarchism. Yeah, and how we dissect power as a post-structuralist and what that means for authority, etc. That'll be its own episode. Well, then I guess we'll have to wait to draw any real conclusions till the post-structuralists allow us to. Well, that will never happen. If you're waiting for post-structuralist conclusions, you're going to be waiting forever. I know. And that goes back to the critique I provided, I don't know, three or four quotes ago at that point in time, that at some point, I don't know, we have to stop, you know, maybe philosophizing and deconstructing everything, which I do love. I love deconstruction. I mean, that's what we do in our courses. But at some point, you have to stop and just 
take a stand. Just take a damn stand at some point, and that's one of my critiques. Uh, we'll actually read. We'll um, we'll discuss in the podcast episode on post structuralist anarchism. Philosopher Todd May, I mean, he's the one that coined post anarchism and has done the most work there. But he actually argues that the post structuralists do make ethical claims, and he's talking about like Deleuze and Leotard and Foucault and others. He says they actually do make claims and give us paths forward. Um, so we'll discuss that when we get there. But in general, yeah, if you're waiting for a definitive post-structural tactic for how to win the battle, that's that's not which goes there. against everything, of course, a post-structuralist stand for. And then we get caught in this everlasting, of course, paradigm, this back and forth, and 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 that's good. It's good for what we term in our resistance and revolution class deprecation, deprecation of the present or deprecation of the state. Uh, but very rarely does it actually. I, again, this is my opinion provide enough conclusive evidence for us to move forward. Like if we all agree that the state sucks for reasons X, 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 and X, and that's fine, and there are numerous ways we can deconstruct it, right? Foucault deconstructs prisons and sexuality and all those, that's great. What does it mean? That's what we want to get to. So uh, I'll be looking forward to what the post-structuralists have to say about that. All right. So we'll leave this episode there. Um, you can find us on revolutionideology.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so at hello at revolutionandideology.com. Uh, until next time, I'm Nick Lee. Jared Benson. We will see you guys later. Take it easy.